My name is Jimmy, and I'm an alcoholic. And because this program works, I've been kept sober since June the 10th, 1982. And that's the truth. <laughs> I would like to dedicate this talk to young Mr. Griffin. Um, you know, I sponsored myself my first 90 days of sobriety. And um, my sponsor and I ended up drunk naked in North Carolina. <laughs> so if you don't have a sponsor, you should probably get one. I would like to say thank you to the committee. Thank you to Pat, the speakers, for inviting me to this uh, pretty, pretty um, really good feeling conference. Um, I meet the only requirement that I have to, to be okay up here. I'm terrified. <laughs> so God can probably work with me. <laughs> and I have not got a clue what I'm going to say. And that's always good. <laughs> uh, since the Father does the works and runs AA, let's ask God in this meeting and I'll tell you my story. Thank you. You know, I've come to know the only thing we have are our stories. You telling your story opened up the door to what this program is for and what it's meant to me because I was a 40-year-old man and I never was able to tell the truth about who I really was. I lived in shame and degradation and, and uh, uh, Wallace told my story last night, but I'm going to add just a few little, few little things to it. Um, I sit in a meeting two or three months sober and heard a lady say these words. She says, you know, in our house, nobody could ever tell the truth. Nobody ever talked about what was happening in our house. We had a two-ton elephant in our house. And everybody went over it or around it, and I sat there bizarre and still toxic and I said well my god we but we had lions and tigers and baboons and everything in my house because I come from a long line of dysfunction uh, I am one of those people that come from a dysfunctional family I said that one time there's a lady right back about three rows back and she rolled her eyes and and, and said oh my and I, and I had a little shame attack you know and then, and then I thought, well, hell, if you came from one, you need to say it. If you didn't come from one, you need to not say it. And I came out of madness and confusion and really chaos. And here's my story. Uh, my mother came from a place in, in, in Kentucky called Central City, Kentucky. She left home when she was 15 years old. She started having children when she was 16 years old. She had my older brother, Bobby, when she was 16. She had me when she was 17, and she was going to go on and have 10 children. I'm the second of 10 kids, and my mother had some really bad relationship problems. None of the daddies ever hung around. I never knew who my father was, and, and, and the first thing I realized is that I'm kind of living in a kind of semi-ghetto areas of Louisville, Kentucky, and then my basic memories are about housing projects until I got to be a grown man. 
the first four of us lived in the housing project. Now, I never knew what I was supposed to be as a little boy. I never knew how I was supposed to act when I would get around somebody. So this is the scenario of my childhood. I would come out of the house in the morning, and if I thought you were a tough guy, I'd be a tough guy. I'd swell up, talk outside of my mouth, you know. Because I came from an environment where if you walked out of the house in the morning and you didn't know who this guy was, he might knock you down. If you were a real gorgeous little girl, I'd be a hip slick, cool little boy. If you were a nice little old lady, I'd be a nice little kid. And then every now and then, I'd get around four or five of you at the same time, I'd damn near have a nervous breakdown. Because <laughs> I'm something different to everybody I run into. I not a clue. I had not a clue who I was supposed to be when I was growing up. And then as a little boy, I figured out this is supposed to be. Get me a little kick going, a little, a little stuff going here. That's the last of my defects. That's the only thing I put in my temple that shouldn't go there probably. But I love it. <laughs> and so I figured out I'm supposed to learn how to be a real man. And the other thing that I'm going to learn how to do is I'm going to learn how to make it. Still don't know what either one of them are. My first recollection of a little boy of anything to do with God or spirituality is that when I was a little kid, we used to go to the Salvation Army and we used to go to the Volunteers of America and we'd make potholders and they'd give you cookies and milk and you'd talk about Jesus. And Jesus was, had long, pretty hair and he was real. And you'd sing these songs about him. I just loved him. Just loved him. You know, but then probably five or six years old, my mother started taking us to these churches that Wallace used to go to. They did everything but hold snakes. They did the tambourines, they screamed, they yelled, and they scared the hell out of little kids. And here's what they said. Here's what I heard a guy, I don't know if he said it, this is verbatim. This is what I heard somebody say from behind one of these things when I was about this big. He says, if you do A, B, C, and D, then you're going to die, you're going to go to hell, and this is what I heard as a little kid. And you're going to burn forever and ever and ever. And I said to myself, I, you know, that's a long time. Man, that's a long time. And my first deal with God was that he had all... I can remember even going through life as a grown person and thinking about God and the room would heat up, knowing he was going to go to hell. Cause, because I, I did A, B, C, D, E, F, and G. I lied. I stole. I looked at the girls the way I wasn't supposed to. I did everything. And I knew as a little boy that I was a dead man. I knew that I had, had, was not going to make it. Uh, the, the things I remember about my childhood are, are this. I remember the really the, the, the ugly poverty. I remember the poverty of not having nice uh, clothes like other kids. I remember the poverty of not having shoes. Shoes were very significant in my life. I always thought that, that, that I could look at a pretty girl and she could tell I stuck that cardboard in those shoes to cover those holes up, you know. Um, this is a, a little scenario of my childhood. Uh, my mother said, Jimmy, go down to Miss McQuillan's and see if they give us a half a stick of butter. Mama went down there like, get on down there and get that butter. Miss McQuillan, I almost know, can we have a half stick of butter? Them goddamn Daniels, kid, bombing again. 
And, it feel, and it's like somebody drive a sword through your heart when you hear things like that. And you just felt like you just never was going to be enough to, to, to shape up and be what was, what was around you. So I, I, uh, I remember when I was a kid, they used to have some cartoons, and one of them was Dick Tracy. And there was a little guy running around his, his cartoons, and he had a little cloud over his head, and it rained on him all the time. And I thought, man, I know what that guy, I know that one. Because I felt like it rained on me all my life, you know. Uh, now, what I have just shared with you is basically all I know about my childhood. That's about it. I've talked to some people, and they say some of us don't remember a whole lot. And that's all I remember. Didn't like it. Did not like it. Couldn't get along with anybody. Didn't like school. Stayed depressed. And, and, and I'm one of those people that, that believes this. I believe if I hadn't run it, had not run into massive amounts of alcohol and or drugs, you'd have a different speaker here today. I believe that. I, um, I got to be 12 years old, and um, the most important thing in my life happened as a 12-year-old. I never had had anything happen to me before like this in my entire life. I looked around one day, and there she was. There she was. I went, my God, the bells started ringing and the birds started singing for the first time in my life. I thought, what do I do now? The little voice said, Go home and tattoo her name on your leg, your name on her leg. You know, I went home, tattooed her name down here on my leg. <laughs> I had born to lose tattooed over here on my leg. It tells you where I came from. That's <clears throat> what we did when we was kids. We put tattoos on us and, you know, just hung around the basements and talked about what we was going to do when we got big, you know. Um, one day, Georgetta came up to me and she says, can I see the tattoo? I said, yeah, here it is. And that's how we got together. Did not have enough courage to walk up and say, hey, I like you. Or, you know, and this is my first girlfriend. And we got between these two buildings and we kissed for two years. Now, this is also what I did. I came from an environment where you don't have a whole lot going on, so you would do what the people in front of you did. And I had these older guys that told me, says, hey, man, you need to go break up with her about every two or three weeks. And I'd say, what for? They said, well, let her know who's running the show. It's okay. So I go break up with her, and I come back, and um, we just do that. I would just do that. I would just break up with her, come back, break up with her. One day, I took this ring to her, an old junk ring, and uh, she says, I don't want it. And I thought I was going to die. I thought I was going to die. There's a guy making a run on her. He's got a 49 Ford. I got a 58 Schwinn. <laughs> I'm a dead man, fellas. You know? <laughs> you know what? I lost that deal. And as I look back on that, I said to myself, how am I going to get through this? How am I ever going to get through that? I never knew loss like that before in my life. I, I think some of us, and I think some of us, and I think I speak for all of us, we have so little along the way, and I think that's one of the reasons you and I get so attached to some of these things that come into our life is because we've never had anything. And we see these things and we hang on to them. I remember one of, the, one of the most incredible things when I found you people. 
I saw a sign that said, everything I ever let go of had claw marks all over it. And I went, my God, ain't that the truth? Because I let go. Yeah, I let go. Yeah, die and go to hell. And then almost do die and go to hell. Then you let go. The only way we do it. I let this little girl go. I let this little girl go. And one of the most significant parts of the book for me is something Wallace said last night. Silkworth says in the beginning of the book that you and I drink for the effect of it. I started drinking alcohol as a 12 or 13 year old kid to take the pain away from a broken relationship. And you know what? It did it. It took it away. And I can remember the other thing that that set up for me is it set up this. That pain was, and this is, this is something I discovered as a 43 or 44-year-old man in Alcoholics Anonymous after the fact. The thing it set up for me is that I was not ever going to walk through that pain again. And here's what I did unconsciously to make sure that I didn't walk through that pain again. If I ever got into another relationship, I got me a backup. I got a backup. You leave me, so what? I got something waiting in the wings, you know. And what you're listening to is, an, is a tragedy. You see, I never knew intimacy until I got into this program and stopped that crap, you know. Never, ever, ever knew what intimacy was. Um, quit school when I was 15 years old, got a job as an errand boy in a dental laboratory, started delivering false teeth. Put me together a little rock and roll band when I got to be 17 years old, and I did pretty good for a little while. And uh, as I got to be 18, I met a little girl named Ethel. And she looked a little bit like that, that girl that you mentioned. And God, I loved her. Just fell in love almost instantly. Didn't have to tattoo her name on me. Singing in a rock and roll band, you know. And uh, we got together and we got married. We decided to pool our money and get out of these housing projects and, and get married and take on life, you know. Uh, as a 19-year-old boy, I was a full-blown alcoholic doing lots of drugs. I did lots of drugs because you do a lot of drugs in the housing projects. And as a 20-year-old, I started fathering children. And as a 23, 24-year-old kid, I found myself on the way to prison for the first time because I came from an environment where everybody went to prison. You know, all my buddies was in prison when I got there. Um, I went to prison for cashing somebody else's income tax check. I was a terrible husband. I was a terrible father. By the time I got to prison, I realized that I wanted to be a good father. Now, I want to be a good husband. <laughs> I heard someone say when I was about, three, about a month sober, she says, you want to get sober 30 days? Slap a cop. <laughs> You'll get sober 30 days. <laughs> <laughs> And you know, when you get in prison, you know what? See, we're, we judge ourselves by what we think, you know, and, and everybody else is judging us by our actions. And now I'm in prison, and I thought, What's a, what am I doing here? How the hell am I, what am I in prison for? Well, I was in prison for taking people's stuff. You know, I felt like I was a political prisoner. Poor whites, <laughs> blacks, you know. <laughs> and now I'm writing these letters at home. Uh, I, Hey, um, write me. Write me a letter. <laughs> write me a damn letter. Um, my actions did not, didn't deserve a letter. Um, I was in prison for 14 months. 
They called me to the chaplain's office. The chaplain said, Mr. Daniels, there's been a terrible tragedy in Louisville, Kentucky. He said, your wife has been found murdered. It's an unsolved murder, and you're not going to be able to go home because you, um, you have this escape on your jacket. I had escaped from jail. And he said that all in one sentence. And the little voice said, you ought to slap him out of that chair. And my life has never been the same since that day. Because that little voice when I was a kid came back to me again and said, How are you going to get through this one? How are you ever going to live through this deal here? And um, I'll tell you how I did it. Massive, massive, massive amounts of drugs and alcohol. Because from that day in my life, until I found you, if they didn't have me behind bars... I was shooting and pouring as much drugs and alcohol in this body to take that awful, ugly hole out of me. And, 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 and that's just the way it is. It's just that simple. Um, I was going to go to prison four times. I was going to do the natural life on the installment plan. <laughs> I got uh, I got out of prison, uh, and, and I had all these ideas and all these things I was going to do. I'm going to be a real father. I'm going to be a good guy. I'm going to get out, and I'm going to I'm going to take care of my kids. I'm going to see if I can't send my kids to college. But you know, the great fact of my life is that I can never ever make anything more than minimum wage. You know, I couldn't pull it off. I was not going to be able to do any, any you know, how are you going to do that? Um, I was out for eight months, and I went back to prison for, um, for burglary. I got out. I was out for seven months, and I went back to prison for a bunch of armed robberies on a bunch of drugstores. Uh, now, this, at this stage of my life, I, I've been incarcerated for a few years, and I don't like it. And it's starting to be a problem. A lady said to me one time, she said, son, how was you able to do all that time in prison? And I said, hell, I was a tough guy. And then as you stay sober longer, you get a little more honest. And a lady asked me about five years sober. She said, how was you able to stay in prison so long? And I said, you know what, ma'am? I said, it was just as bad out here as it was in there. And that's the thing I had to report to you. It was bad everywhere. Everywhere I went was bad. But now, when you're locked up for a while, it's getting real bad. I like what, what Wallace said. You know, I've had a lot of people say, oh, we've all been to prison. And I think, yeah, you ought to try that arm bar and concrete kind. You think, you think you've been to prison. <laughs> That'll give you something to think about, you know. <laughs> After about a year and a half, you think you ain't never been out, you know. And so I'm, I'm really having a problem. Now, here's my problem. My problem is I don't know how to not go to prison. I don't know what your cross is when you walk through the doors of Alcoholics Anonymous. That was my cross. I didn't know, I didn't know how I kept ending up in prison. So I'm trying to figure out, well, the voices inside said, here's what you need to do. This is what you need to do. Get out of prison, be a real man, and quit shooting the drugs. You know how everybody drinks. Drink a little bit. Smoke a little pot. Take a few pills. Be a real man. Everybody does. They get you a job. Just stay out all night, two nights a week. You don't got to stay out all night, every night. You don't got to party every night, all night. You, get, you know, watch them. Watch what they do and go do that. Now, this is my new mission. You see, I would take these things on like they're missions. This is what, well, this is what I want to do. I want to do it. Yeah, okay. So I got out and I went and told a guy I was a dental technician. And this is what I do. You know one of the most awesome things you told me? You said, hey, man, fake it till you make it. And you know what I said? I said, shit, I've been doing that all my life. I know that works. 
and I know fake it till you make it worse. That's the only way we know how to do it. Most of us did that. Most of us didn't go to school and learn. We just got up there and told them we know how to do it. And they let, you know. And, and, and this guy gave me a job for $5 an hour in a dental laboratory. And he said, you're not a technician, but I'll help you be one. So he drank vodka. So I started drinking vodka. When Rome do as the Romans do, you know. And in a period of about 15 months, I'm drinking two quarts of vodka a day. I got four DWIs in 22 days, and they sent me to the penitentiary for being a drunk. Now, I was just a stick-up man. Now I'm a drunk, Wallace. You know? <laughs> they wouldn't even talk to me. My old buddies wouldn't even talk to me. <laughs> so, I'm getting ready to get out of prison March the 16th, 1981, and I have not been back. And I got a real bad problem, a really humongous problem. I keep ending up in prison, and I do not know why I'm, how I get there. I have not a clue about the disease of alcoholism and drug addiction. Do not know. It's all based on being a real man and being able to quit, et cetera, et cetera. Um, the voices inside. I don't know if you got any voices, but boy, I had some. And they said, hey, man. What are you going to do now? I said, I don't know. You got me. <laughs> they said, hey, how about, um, how about them felonies? You know, some, you keep doing those felonies, Jimmy. Quit doing the felonies. If you don't do the felonies, you don't go to prison. Yeah, and I'm talking back to them. Yeah, okay, all right. So I got a younger brother in Dallas, Texas. I made a decision to go to Dallas, Texas, and to just do misdemeanors. <laughs> So I got to Dallas, Texas. I met a girl. She took me to a concert, so we moved in together, my kind of girl. <laughs> you took me to a concert, I'll die and go to hell for you, baby. Now, I won't be true to you. I won't tell you the truth, you know. Oh, my God, what a relationship. I, I, I had been working on a work crew, and I made about $1,000, so I bought me a, a leather jacket and a pair of alligator shoes. You know, See, I came from that school where you dress this outside up because there ain't nothing else, baby. There's nothing else. I was 40 years old hanging out with you before I knew I had a soul. Never knew it. Never felt it. Had never prayed. Two foxhole prayers. Had never prayed in my life before I found you people. Well, talk about God. Yeah, I'm, yeah, okay, God. Yeah, okay, God. I'm one of your stepkids. You know me? You know. And that's how I felt. I felt like that, that my agenda was, was one of not no worth. How could somebody care about you and treat you like this if they said God got a lot? You know what I think one of the, the great facts for us is in this deal is that we find out God truly loves us. That's been the miracle in this program for me. The God you introduced me to truly loves me. I feel like I'm his most important kid sometimes. <laughs> so I'm, um, I'm trying not to do felonies. I'm working. At, I, I, I went and told a guy I was a dental technician. I took me a couple weeks vacation. I bought me a couple couple hundred quaaludes and a... a bought me some booze and took a couple weeks off. I got broke and I went looking for a job. I told a guy I was a dental technician and um, 
He said, well, go make me a denture. And I went in and made him a denture. He was just opening up a dental clinic. And um, he liked how fast I did it. He didn't know I was on that Texas crank. I was buzzing, you know. <laughs> and he said, how fast? He said, he said this. He said, how many of those can you make a day? And he loved what I said. And I got a flash for you. He regretted the day he ever laid eyes on me. And you know what? Most people do. <laughs> Most people regret the day they ever saw us coming. <laughs> so um, I'm working in a dental clinic, making 500 a week, and uh, stealing and robbing people at night, and uh, trying to make this relationship work. And just, I tell you what, it was the most bizarre time of my life. I was 39 years old, and you know what? I went down, 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 down. Late 1982, I had lost everything that I had. I had an apartment. I lost my apartment. I lost my girlfriend. My girlfriend left me. Um, Lost my job. The guy found out I was stealing his gold and a lot of other things, and he, I got fired. And um, my brother was hanging out with me, and he, he had had too much. He left. He, he left town and went back to Kentucky. And I killed a car, and he gave, me, he gave me this old 71 Maverick. It had the whole right side caved in. The kind of car you'd say, hon, you'll have to get in on my side. You know? <laughs> and... Uh, I'm driving around this old 71 Maverick, and I'm trying to figure out what happened to my life. How did I get to this place? I'll tell you what I got. I got my stuff in the back seat in two Kroger bags. You know what you're looking at right now? You're looking at a person that never had any luggage before he came to Alcoholics Anonymous. Didn't ever need any. You come out of the housing project, people in the housing projects don't have luggage. You ever see people traveling on buses and traveling, they got boxes? Housing project people, probably. You know, what I need, you know, the, 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 uh, uh, double, double plastic bags is what we used to travel with, you know. This is how God works in this drunk's life. I, I play golf and, and, and I travel. And a couple of years ago, uh, uh, three, four, two, three, four years sober, one of my people uh, in, in the program sent me some really nice luggage. And, uh, and uh, I went on a trip, and I'm down at the airport, and I'm waiting for my luggage to come out. And all of a sudden, for some uncanny reason, two pieces of my leather luggage and my golf clubs all came out at the same time. Now, you know what that was for me? A spiritual experience. <laughs> this is what I did. I went, <laughs> it's my luggage! It's my luggage! <laughs> <laughs> it's like God loves me enough to let me have some luggage, you know. <laughs> that wouldn't mean anything to anybody else, you know. So, man, I'm riding around the 71 Maverick, and fellas, I don't feel too cool. I'm trying to say, what the hell is this all about? You know, and you know, you and I are survivors. Silkworth, one of the most awesome parts of the book for me is when Silkworth says this. He says, because of some of the situations surrounding the phenomenon of craving, some of us will make the supreme sacrifice rather than continue to fight. And every now and then I'll be thinking, we had a conversation this morning about why some of us get here and why some of us don't. I had two brothers that died of the disease of alcoholism. One of them sniffed glue until it killed him. He was a 27-year-old man. And I had a brother that committed suicide. 
because of alcoholism, you know. And so, you know, who knows? A um, little voice inside said these words. I said, hey, man, <laughs> you're in big trouble. And I'm talking back to these voices now. I said, yeah, you got that right, buddy. You know, here's, here's my cross. Here's my gauntlet. I'm going to prison for the rest of my life. And I don't know how to stop it. I do not know how to stop it. Been four times. Locked up 12 years. Don't know how. Don't know how. To, the last time I went, I'd only had to stay about a year. I hit my hand on the side of a bunk in the Fayette County Jail in Lexington, Kentucky, and an arm bunk, and I almost broke my hand. I said, God, how did I get back in here? It's happened to you. It's happened to you. How did I get back in here. And that's where I was going. Prison for the rest of my life. Should have went the last time. You know, they call us persistent felony offenders, habitual criminals. That's what they call us. I have lots of friends. You know, one of, the, one of the miracles of my life is I have lots of people come up to me and say, my God, all that time. I'm sure Wallace does too. And right. But you know what? I got buddies and buddies and buddies and buddies and buddies that ain't never getting out of those madhouses. You know? They ain't never going to get out. Um, the voices said, don't give up, man. She's out there. She'll save you. <laughs> You're listening to a lunatic right now. <laughs> I got a voice inside. I'm, gonna do, I'm getting half and half. That's the way I like to do it. Half and half. Somebody told me one time, he said, hey, son, now when you start talking, you need to get to AA by 830. <laughs> like tell those war stories, you know. We're driving around this little city one matter. And the voices said, get her. I said, okay. And they said, now look here. Get you a headband. Get you some running shoes. Get you some shorts. This is serious stuff. I don't know where I got it. But you know what? I got it. I got me one of those scarves, a headband. I looked like, I had to look like a runner, you know? Wasn't going to be able to run far. <laughs> and I was going to go, and my knightess in shining armor was going to pick me up and take me into la-la land, you know? I don't know where I got it, but I always thought you girls had that kind of power. I just loved the fact that I thought, oh, man, one of these days she's going to get me and mow me. And, you know, <laughs> you know I've come to find out y'all ain't got it. You ain't got it. <laughs> I found it out five years sober. You know what it does to guys? It pisses us off. <laughs> but you know what? It's the beginning of the good stuff for me with women. That was the beginning of the good stuff that's happened in my life. So... <laughs> I parked this car. I think I had a six-pack. I don't remember. I, something says I think I had a six-pack. And I found this field in Dallas, Texas, and there's trees all out, and the sun shining down in it. And it must have been four or five acres, and I parked that old car there, and I got out of the car, and, man, I'm going to go run and put my body back together and go get her, you know. A wild man. I got out in this field, and I don't know how far I ran, but I broke down on the ground, and I started bawling, and I started crying. And I started cussing God. 
And I said, God, of all the people to do this to, why have you chose me to do what you've done to me? And I started naming them all. I said, you made me poor. You killed my wife. You kept me locked up all my life. What do you want from me? Where have you been in my life? Um, in that kid's book, he come up and want to know what I wrote. Ellie couldn't even make it out. One of the greatest lines in the book for me is the great fact for us is that we've had deep and effective spiritual experiences. And I had just had my first one. You know, I was sober 10 or 12 years before I realized what happened in that field. I'm one of those kids that come out of those crazy places where little boys don't cry and all that. And it's such a flaw for us guys, you know. We see you girls holding hands and hugging and talking like that. You know, guys, I do it now. I got two or three guys in my life. We're like little kids, man. Tell everything we know, truth, anything. That's a lot of power. That's the kind of power that comes out of these rooms. You know, to be able to say those things and tell those little things that you feel a little ashamed about, you know. And the thing I did in that field was I sobbed and I wept. You ever sobbed, wept? Oh, it's good stuff. I've only done it two or three times. My mother died, and one time I, I, I saw Bobby Kennedy. I, you know, it just comes when it comes. I, I was watching a special on TV, and Bobby Kennedy went down in the south, and he, he met this little girl. A little black girl. And he asked her what she had for breakfast that morning. And she said she didn't have any breakfast. She said they didn't have breakfast. They just ate twice a day. And he went home and he told his children, he was children were sitting around this room. He said, I don't want you to ever forget where you come from. And he told them the little story about the little black girl. And I just bawled, you know. Um... I crawled up out of that field, and two days later, I'm knocking on the doors of a little program called Alcoholics Anonymous. And I walked up to a door at the Alpha Group in early June 1982 at Webb's Chapel Road and Northwest Highway above the Arthur Murray Dance Studio. And they had a piece of glass on the door, and here's what it said on the piece of glass. It said, only 12 steps to go. And you know what I said? I said, hot damn, it must be a hole in on the roof. <laughs> Can you imagine a drunk, drunk walking up to the only 12? He tried to figure it out. You know, I thought, well, where the 12 steps go? They go this way, that way. <laughs> and I walked into that meeting, and the only thing that's changed in my life has been about like my brother Wallace. Everything's changed in my life since I did not know you could live like this. I did not know this kind of life was available for me. You want to tell you what happened to me this year? My 15th year, this is what's happened to me this year. One of the things I know is that you and I are not of this world. If we're not together, we're, we're, there's, something that, there's something that's not right with us. The other thing is that I used to always wonder about that story about the Israelites. You know, they ran around, they ran around for 40 years. Man, he's in the desert for 40 years. I thought, what the hell would anybody want to run around the desert for 40 years? And I realized this year that I lived in the desert for 40 years. I sobered up as a 40-year-old man. It was the desert out there. And I was riding along one day this year, and I was thinking about us, and I was thinking about Alcoholics Anonymous, and I was thinking about what this deal is about every night. You and I get to fly every now and then. We get to fly. 
I get to fly in this deal. And I thought about when I was a little kid, I used to hear about the mountaintop. The mountaintop. Martin Luther King talked about the mountaintop. And I thought, the mountaintop. We get to go to the mountaintop. You and I get to go to the mountaintop. But you know what I didn't know? The only avenue to the, de- to the mountaintop is through the desert. And you and I get to walk through that desert. And I believe that if you don't go through that desert, you don't get that stuff. I have come to know that about you and I. And that's what came to me this year in my 15th year of sobriety. I walked into this, these rooms of people, and I was telling Tom, uh, I am one of those people that knew y'all, were, y'all had the power. Knew it. Felt it. Smelled it. It was everywhere. You had something here that I'd never seen before. Now, here's the only way I know how to describe it. Bill Wilson says on the last page of the 12 and 12, talking about the first step, that if you bottom out, you get to hear with what he calls, what I've come to call, dying ears. If you got these dying ears, you'll hear things nobody else hears them. Nobody else hears them. Thomas Merton, the monk who I discovered three years sober, this is what he said. He says, the word is called fire, not only because it gives light, but especially because it ignites. And that's what I had going on here when I came. You'd say words around these tables. I'd hear them and off like a rocket ship. And I told people right away, I said, man, I feel like somebody stuck a rocket on me. And I couldn't get over it. I was in a group. I said, it's a buck. All, I had just gone. Somebody sent me to, said, you need to go to a psychiatrist or somebody and try to talk about what's wrong with you. And I went to talk to this guy, and he was trying to get me off cocaine, but he told me to drink a six-pack a day. Well, that would kill us. You know, we go. And, uh, and I thought, this, and he, and he charged me $70. And I thought, this is a buck a day, man. Look at this, what I'm getting for a buck, you know. And that little remark about I sponsored myself for the first 90 days, you know, I think that's, you know, this is what happens. I believe one of the things that happens to you when you get here, if you do get here the way you're supposed to, is you realize your best thinking got you here. I realized my, realized my best thinking had me sleeping in a 71 Maverick, and that wasn't too cool. So I picked this little sponsor. Now, here are some miracles that happened to me in the first week of sobriety. Alcoholics Anonymous turned me from a tramp into a businessman in two days. <laughs> I don't know how y'all think that's heavy, but if I got that's heavy to me. <laughs> now, here's how it happened. I heard a guy say, the only thing you need to do to be a businessman is to have a customer. And a rocket took off. And had this young dentist over to this dental clinic, 26-year-old dentist. He says, look. If you want to ever come and do my dentures, you can have them. I marched over to him. I said, look, man, I lost my job. I'm in this little program called AA, and I'm trying to do this. I said, were you serious about giving me your dentures? He said, yeah, here they are. He said, where are you going to do them at? I said, I haven't the slightest idea. And you know where I did, where I did them? Here's the little thing that kind of came about the first week of sobriety. I built my little dental laboratory and my business on these three principles. Fake it till you make it. <laughs> Repetition strengthens and confirms and the big daddy of all the principles, and that is to be willing to go to any lengths to make it work. I made dentures in a bathroom and had Daniel's Dental Studio hung across the mirror. <laughs> I got a picture of it, too. I took a picture of it. 
take these dentures to other people's labs that I'd worked for along the way. And you, you know, there's little signs in AA in Dallas that say anywhere we go, the hand of AA will reach out to help you or something like that. And that has been my experience. That if I have the desire, I'm willing to go to any lengths, there will be somebody there for me. It's never gone bad. And I would make these dentures in, in people's, uh, other people's labs. And, 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 and then when I was a couple of months sober, there was a guy going down, and, I was, and, and he let me come in his lab. And, and for $100 a month, I got to sleep on the floor in a sleeping bag and I had a telephone. You've got to have a telephone for a dental laboratory for your, for your accounts. And, and so I just kind of just got a little better and a little better, you know. And if you want to know who I was my first 90 days of sobriety, my name is Jimmy Daniels. I'm a drug addict and an alcoholic, and I shot that stuff too, man. You know how they come through the doors loud and boisterous. And, and I had a guy say, hey, man, if you want somebody to tell a bigger story than you, we'll fly them in. <laughs> and I went... <laughs> and so... Uh, you learn a lot of humility through humiliation, don't you? <laughs> I, I, I was three, four months, uh, two, three months over, and there's three guys hanging around. I think it was a lawyer, a real estate man, and, and another guy. And I'm still wild. I mean, it took. I, I tell you what, I'm gonna be real honest. If you think I'm wild now? It took five years to get that wildness out of me to where I could just kind of wasn't bouncing everywhere, you know. And I walked by him, and I, somebody mentioned the word CDs. I said, oh, yeah, yeah, CDs. Yeah, you know, Willie yeah. Nelson, Willie Nelson, CD. And the guy rolled his eyes on me. You know what happened when they roll their eyes on us? They go, and I went, he said, we're talking about certificates of deposit. <laughs> <laughs> and I got a shame attack. <laughs> Let me tell you what that did. For the next three months, Every dime I got my hands on, I hung on to it. Four or five, six months over, I come up with a thousand dollars, and I went and bought me a thousand dollar CD. I couldn't get all three of them together, but I caught two of them together. And I walked by them one day. I said, "Hey, baby, check that out." <laughs> Certi- hey, I said certificate of deposit. <laughs> You know what? They still rolled their eyes at me. <laughs> you know what I did? I had to take it back a week later and turn it in. I lost about $150. <laughs> but I learned how to get certificates of deposit. <laughs> and that's what I did. I watched what you did. I just did what you did. You know, some of us get here, we have no, you know, I was like a little bitty baby when I got here. I was like a little bitty baby. My sponsor told me, he said, well, Jimmy, so what do you think about not having sex with the girls? I went, oh, my God. I said, what? He said, yeah, he said, some of us are really sick. You know, some of us are sicker than others. I thought, yeah, I know that. <laughs> and I heard that thing when I first got here. It said, uh, you know, it's hard to find God when you're sleeping with her. <laughs> And I went, oh, my God. And he said, well, here's what you need to do. He said, no sex until you go through the steps or until you, you know, until you get a year. And I thought, what is this guy talking about? And you know what? I went for it one day at a time because I think some of us are that sick. And I was afraid not to. 
You know, I never did it. I was drinking or drugging. I thought, well, you know, what the hell, you know, I'll just, I'll go over there. I'm a month sober, and I met this real nice lady, and she said, would you like to go have some coffee? I said, yeah, I, yeah. But I said, but I can't have any sex. Because <laughs> 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 I came from a place where, yeah, that's what you did, and it went downhill from there. You know, you lock eyes, know that's what she's going to do, and then the deal went, <laughs> So I'm a businessman. And here's what I got going on. I am kind of having a few problems the first few days I'm sober. And I call my sponsor and I says, look, I, I'm not going to be able to stay here, man. I, I got to go. I got to go. And I made a decision to leave. And he said, where are you going? I said, I don't know, but I got to go. Well, he said, why are you going to go? I said, I can't go the rest of my life without drinking and drugging and the girls. I said, I can't do it. It's, I can't pull it off, man. It's an impossibility. So there's no sense in me hanging around here and acting like I can. Here's what he said. If it ain't never happened to you, it ain't significant. I hope it happens to one person today. He said, Jimmy, he said, let me tell you something. I had heard this little deal 50 times. He said, we don't do this thing the rest of our lives. He says, we just do this thing one day at a time. And I think about Bill Wilson and Thomas Merton because it went from here to here and in three or four days sober I have been living my life one day at a time. It's one of the most awesome things I've ever had happen to me. You know, I can't stay sober the rest of our lives. Can't, can't pull it off. A couple years ago I had a, a kid I was sponsoring. He's taught me we, got, we, we both got big agendas. I'm, I'm hiding the razor blades and he's hiding the rope. I said, hey, man. I said, hell. I said, man, we ain't, and it's 11, it was 10 after 11 at night. I said, let's shut it down. Let's see if we can just get through today. I don't remember what either one of them was. That's how that powerful that is. Um, hanging around the tables and a guy says these, these words. He says, how you doing? You doing okay? Well, I'm dying. He says, you got, still got that phenomenon of craving anybody in here? And I thought I, was, I would go out and count the beer joints on the way back. And I had this awesome struggle going on inside about the drugs and the alcohol. And uh, he says, well, here's what we do. He says, we get on our knees in the morning and we ask God to keep us sober. He said, we get on our knees at night and we thank him. And a little voice said, you going to go for some weak crap like that? And a little voice that fast said, hey, sucker, you've gone for weaker crap than that. You better try that one. <laughs> I'm three or four days sober. Y'all got me hiding in the mop closets, locking myself in filling station bathrooms at night, getting on my knees, praying to a God I don't even believe is going to help me. And, and, and that's just the way. You know what? Again, I was afraid not to do it. Because I got something going on that most people don't. And I think this, you know, I got here the best way you could get here. I didn't have any place else to go. I'm of this, I, this is what I believe. I believe if you got any place else to go besides here, you'll go there. I have a monk friend that lived in a monastery for 20 years. He's now sober for six years. Brother Luke. He says he never knew God until he came to Alcoholics Anonymous. This is the toughest spiritual program out of all of them. This is the toughest one. 
And this is the, and, and, and of course when you start walking it, you know that it is. Um, I'm standing around the group after about a week, eight, nine, ten days. All of a sudden, I got a glow. And all of a sudden, I got this feeling inside that I had never had in my whole life. I had never felt like this before. And I said to myself, I said, something's different. And the something that was different, I realized, was that that madness and that chaos and that confusion had been snatched all the way. And it's called the phenomenon of craving in the mental obsession. Had been snatched out of me, and I hadn't even known it was gone. I knew something was different for a few days. And when you have something that powerful happen to you, you I've never been the same since that day. I have never. I, I, I was thinking this year and last year that it had here and that was the only thing that had happened to me, I think I might still be sober today if none of the steps had ever, I think there's a good possibility because what you taught me was that you taught me how to pray and you taught me, I found out by doing it, the only thing I need to know and that is it works. I had prayed to have that stuff taken out of my life and it had happened. And from that day forward, I've been a different cat. Different person that was different before that. Um, I had another thing happen to me. I don't always tell this, but I'll tell this today. <laughs> I am one of those people that literally would turn their will and their life over to the care of, of, of women, you know. Uh, there's a word that's bandied about in alcoholics and around out there in the community called codependency. And they don't like it too much in AA, but I'm sober 15 years, so I'll talk about anything I want to up here. <laughs> but I don't think we need to get off into that. This is what I've come to know. This is what I've come to know. You can call it whatever you want to. I call it doing the third step with a human being. You know, I would turn my will and my life over to the care of people, and I would almost die. I'm the firm believer that if alcohol and drugs will do for me, people and sex and other stuff will damn sure do it too, you know. And I would turn my will over to these people, and when they did, and they'd leave and flee. Bill Wilson talks about it in the 12 and 12. In step four, the primary fact you and I fail to realize is our total inability to form a true partnership with another human being. We dig two disastrous pitfalls, dominance and dependence. And I chose dependence because I couldn't dominate nobody. <laughs> I'm always dependent. Suffered from basically a welfare mentality, raised on welfare, prisons form of welfare, and I turned my will and my life over to people, and that was a form of welfare. I realized about 10 years sober that if I hadn't found a way not to do that, I was going to spend the rest of it. That's one of the reasons I went to prison. I don't know how to, I don't want, want to get off into long, drawn-out detail, but that's one of the reasons that I went. Um, now, the last girl had left me. I'm dying. You know, when they leave you, it's a different story than you leaving them, you know. I'm dying, you know. I'm talking to my sponsor one day. He said, how are you doing? I said, well, I'm doing fine. You doing fine? Yeah. 
Y'all doing fine, man. Y'all know fine, don't you? <laughs> what was it? Effed up, insecure, neurotic, and emotional. Yeah. And he said, well, look here. He said, you're not supposed to. He said, uh, uh, I'm not doing so good. He said, maybe you ought to start sponsoring me. And you know what I said to myself? I said, this conversation is not supposed to be going like this. <laughs> Now, here it is, fellas. The voices got after me. The voices said this. They said, no, you better not tell that grown man that that girl has left you. You're dying over it. She's got a boyfriend. You know what they're doing, and it's killing you. Now, you, be, you better not tell. And, and you know what? Every bit of that was the truth. I thought I was going to die over this relationship. You know what I did? The freedom comes from it. Blurted it out. I said, Luther, I'm dying over this girl. She's got a guy in there doing this job. I think I'm going to die. It's killing me. It's killing me. You know what he said? He said, great, man. Great. Here's what we do, man. Here's what we do here. Here's what we do. He said, pray for her. We're going to start praying for her. And my eyes crossed. <laughs> I said, Luther. I'm dying, man. I'm dying. You know what she's doing? I couldn't do it. I said, I'll die and go to hell before I pray for her. <laughs> Almost did. Almost did. It got to the fork in the road, the turning point. I've been to a lot of turning points in AA. I love that how it works. We stood at the turning point. Here's what he said. He said, you've got to pray for her. This is real bizarre. My life was bizarre, though. I mean, he said... Pray for her. The only thing I know that happened was that I had prayed and it had worked. Now, i got two things going on at this stage of my life. Somebody told me in a meeting that if you got something in your head and it's bothering you, ask God to take it. Everything's bothering me, and I'm going around all day long saying, God take it, 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 God take it. And so, girl was bothering me really bad, too, so she loved Kenny Loggins. I hated him. I didn't even know him, and I hated him. One day, I fell down on my knees, and I said, God, give her Kenny Loggins. And you know what? I got better. I got better. I really, really, really did get better. And let me tell you what about my, something about my life. I went to prison four times. Three, and every time I went, I had one of those really crazy relationships, you know? Three times I got out of prison, I never got to see the person again. I, you know, you and I, <clears throat> one of the reasons that I can get so comfortable in sharing with you people is that line in the big book that says these words, you and I will know loneliness as few people do, you know. And I know everybody sitting in this room has had that kind of loneliness that I've had, and usually over people. Usually about people. And, um, and the only way I can share with you is that that was the beginning of me not ever having the hopelessness and the loneliness of those people situations for the rest of my life. For the rest of my life. i got a deal going on right now. I've been praying for a month. But you know that thing that you hear when you first walk through the door? We've never heard it. We have never heard it. I think people have told us. We've never heard it. Hey, it's going to be okay. And I know that today. And that's the thing we give to each other in these rooms and in these meetings. 
is that it's going to be okay. Um, I got over that relationship. First one I ever ha- ever happened. I saw her a few months later, and I got to talking to her, and she was smoking marijuana, and a little voice inside said these words. I told her, I said, you know what? One of us is going to have to live. You know what? And that's the thing that happened early in my sobriety is I made a choice to live. And, that's, and, and you know what? That girl died two or three years ago trying to make this program. Um, because those things happen, um, I made a decision to walk through the 12 steps of this program. It took about a year. I literally did it word by word by word by word. Got stuck everywhere like everybody does. Got stuck in the second step on insanity. I thought, well, now they want me to tell them I'm crazy. <laughs> I ain't going to do it. The reason I, the reason I wasn't going to do it is because I thought it was. <laughs> They sent me to a they sent me to a psychiatrist before I got out of prison that third time on those armed robbery charges. If you had armed robbery, murder, or rape, you had to see a psychiatrist before you went to pro board. I remember talking to the psychiatrist. I never had been to one. I thought well, this guy's gonna find out how I think, and I ain't never gonna get out. So I talked to him for a few minutes, and and, and that was in '77. And uh, I looked at him and I said, Hey man, can I ask you a question? He said, Sure. I said, What do you think about me? I'll never forget it as long as I live. You know what he said? He said, you seem like a pretty good guy. He said, but damn, you've made some bad decisions. <laughs> That's what they think about us. They have no idea about the phenomenon of craving. They have no idea that when you and I start, we ain't going to tell you what's going to happen to us. You think Wallace decided to go do what he did that day? My God. I could, hey, prison's full of people that, that, that have no idea what happened to them. No idea. Um... I always maintain my hope, and I, you know, I am not going to be one of those people that say you get in here and everything turns to, 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 to cake and ice cream. It has been a long, long road in the last 15 years. I have known lots of joy, but turning that madness and that chaos and that confusion and 40 years of stuff around has been a, a, a pleasure, an agony. And the only thing that's kept me going along the way is the hope of what this deal is about and the God that you introduced me to when I first found this program. But i got a flash for you. This is the most important thing in my life, is that I thought all those things was my problem. I didn't have a father. My mother was crazy. Uh, uh, beatings and, 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 and prison and dying. And, I, and then I found out that the only thing I needed to know that I was an alcoholic and I could not manage my own life. You see, I drove up here. I told somebody I was not an alcoholic when I got here. Went to the penitentiary for drinking two quarts of vodka a day and four DWIs, but I wasn't no alcoholic. The hell, I'm a real man, you know. And I sat a month for two or three days and found out I had it too. You know what I am today? Commode, hugging, puking, garden variety alcoholic. The drug, I have not had any drugs in my body since I found you. None. Um... I want to talk about a couple of amends tonight, and then I'm going to close this. I'm not going to hang you people up. Um, um, I'm one of those people that didn't have any, any financial amends, you know. <laughs> you know, I never had any credit. <laughs> I was talking to my sponsor one day. He says, you got any, you got any financial amends? And so I did have, have, have a couple. I, I, wrecked a, 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 I wrecked a Cadillac. Uh, uh, and the guy in the dental laboratory signed for me a two-year-old Cadillac. I suffer from what they call a Cadillac syndrome. Uh, 
I learned about that in a, in a, I took some college courses in prison. And, and I'm one of those people that never had anything else, so, so we drive nice cars. Like I had a Cadillac and I didn't have no place to live, you know. <laughs> but I killed this Cadillac. And my sponsor says, well, you owe anybody any money? I said, no, man, I don't know. I said, I had a guy uh, sign for a Cadillac. I said, but hell, he, you know, he signed for it, so he paid for it. He said, well, who wrecked it? I said, well, I wrecked it. He said, you owe the guy the money for the Cadillac. Now, Mr. Vice is the man I owe for the Cadillac. God, I take these older guys on, and I just fall in love with them because of not ever having a father. And Mr. Vice told me to get away from his dental laboratory, and he didn't ever want to see me again. And, uh... I don't blame him, you know. A couple of months sober, I started sending Mr. Vice some money. I had two financial amends. My daughter Melissa was 15 years old and Mr. Vice. And I had called Mr. Vice when I was sober a couple of weeks, and I said, Mr. Vice, I'm so, I thought he was going to hang up on me. I literally thought he was going to hang up on me. I sent him a, a check, and, and, and um, I called him, and I said, Mr. Vice, and, he's, and, he, and he said, well, hope you do good. Hope you do good. <laughs> About a year into the deal, oh, what you got? Maybe nine hundred dollars. Hello, Mr. Vine. Oh, hello, Jim. <laughs> Three years sober, I think I got it. Got it done. Got it done. Uh, by now, when I call him up, Mr. Vice. Hello, son. <laughs> <laughs> hello, son. You know what I heard a lady say. In, in one of these meetings, she says, you pay back love with love and money with money. I'm four years sober. My whole life has changed. I've been trying to figure out what, what, you know, what my whole life has changed. Now I'm feeling really bad about my little wife that died. I thought, man, I love, God, man, I'm flying home. doing. I'm, you know, what's this all about, you know? My mother had a stroke and I went to Kentucky. And... Um, I'm jockeying back and forth and seeing my kids and my mother being in a hospital. All of a sudden, one day, my car ended up at my wife's grave. And uh, I'd only been there drunk, and I'd only been there really bad shape. And I remember when I did that, I used to tell her how I'd like to trade places with her. And you know, you and I know where that I really meant it. And she was really a sweet, sweet woman. And um, my children miss her terribly. Um, I said, uh, I sit down on her grave. I cleaned her gr little, little grave off. And I said, Ethel, I said, um, Dory's getting ready to marry a doctor's son. My oldest daughter, Dory, married a doctor's son. We used we to talk about when we were kids that we had no idea that you could get out there and fend for yourself and make money and, you know, just lived in that poverty. That, that poverty thing is such a tragedy. And um, I said, Petey shot a 68 on a golf course last week. My boy's an incredible golfer. And I said, uh, Ethel, Melissa is a mess. My daughter came to Dallas, and I made a men's tour. She said, what are you talking about? And, um, and I said these words. I said, Ethel, I'm doing the best I can. And I got up, and I walked away from that grave, and it's been okay ever since. I have not had one bad feeling about that deal. Let me tell you a miracle that happened. I believe in angels today. I had one of them walk up to me two days sober. I got a little meditation book about angels. I read it every morning. Incredible book. This guy tapped me on my shoulder. This, this is the power and the essence of the program we're in. Two days sober. Hey, man. He said, do you know that everything you did before you got here was the best you could do 
And if you could have done it any different, you would have. And I started crying. And that's the thing I know about you and I. Everything we did before we got here was literally the best we could do. One of the other miracles in my life is I always was wondering where God was. If we, You love me, God, you dirty son of a bitch. How, how could you treat me like you treated me? Three or four days sober, walked a little group on a, on a wall. Some of you have seen it. Footprints. Read it. St- almost started bawling. God carries us through that madness, through that pain. Um, eight years sober, my friend, Brother Luke, I have been on a search to learn to meditate and pray. That's my favorite step, step 11. I guess because prayer has changed my life so incredibly. I'm trying to find how I need to learn how to pray. I've been everywhere. I've been to monasteries. I've been into Zen Buddhism. I have been everywhere trying to learn how to do that deal. And, and I've had a lot of success at it. And I'm talking to my buddy one day, my best friend, he's a Jew. And he said, Jimmy, the Jews know that you people that do your deal, because I'm a red letter man. He said, y'all got the, one of the most powerful prayers in the world. I said, what is it, Brent? He said, St. Francis Prayer. I said, I'll be down. I'll be down. It's in our book. You know, you and I will go a lot of different ways to get back to the book, you know, to the source. And I'm talking to my mom for one day. I said, hey, man, I'm going to check out the St. Francis prayer. Here's what he said. He said, Jimmy, do it till you own it. I thought, what a strange remark. Do it till you own it. And I started living with the St. Francis prayer every day. Every day. This is the only part I want to quote to you. Lord, make me a channel of thy peace, that where there's hatred, I may bring love. That where there's wrong, I may bring the spirit of forgiveness. That where there's discord, I may bring harmony. And where there's error, I may bring truth. Now, I lived with that part of it for a couple of months because I couldn't go any further. I wanted to make it my own, and I wanted to own it. My daughter Melissa called me and said, Dad, I'm going to get married. I went, oh, there is a God. Melissa's getting married. (laughs) And she said, I want you to walk me down the aisle. And, buddy, if you've not had that happen, then you can't put words to that. And I walked my daughter Melissa down the aisle. And I paid for it, too. (laughs) (laughs) And I'm still paying for it. (laughs) And I have a lady friend. And my children were raised by their in-laws. And my, my lady friend said, Jimmy, have you ever made amends to those in-laws? And I said, let me tell you something. You're, you're just getting a little bit out of line. I said, let me tell you something. They hate me. I hate them. And we put it on paper. We write each other hate mail. You know? And I got another little flash for you. We like it like that. And what I'd like for you to do, now you're talking about, listen, this is the major resentment of my life. Some of y'all got them. And it took 12 years for this to happen. My in-laws raised my children. And while they were raising my children, they told them on a daily basis who I was, what I was, where I was, and called good money. Because I got another little flash for you. When they had me locked up, they had the right guy. They had the right guy. 
But what happened was it created in my children a lot of confusion, a lot of sadness. But the, the thing that I got in touch with after the fact was that this family had martyred their, their daughter and their, and, and, and their sister. And it was like, I lost nothing. Like, had, had I been a real man, she'd still be alive. I, cannot, I will not even try to talk to you about what that has did to my life, of not being able to be a husband and a father. And I carried it, and I soaked it and ground it, and, and, and as my life got better, I started really enjoying the fact that my life was good and they struggled. I really did. I really did. Two days before I went to do, this, to do my daughter's um, wedding, this lady said these words to me. She said, Jimmy, when are you going to thank those people for taking care of your children? And I had been on that meditation and on that prayer, and I tell you what, it was the great error of my life. That where there's error, I may bring truth. I almost broke down. I said, my God, I've never thanked those people for taking care of my children. They gave up life and took care of my kids. I had a sister-in-law that, didn't, that, that gave her whole life, didn't get married, didn't do it. She took care of my kids. I went home and wrote letters. I said, I want to thank you for taking care of my children when their mother died. Your kindness and your compassion has made it possible for me to attend Melissa's wedding, something I never dreamed possible. Blew them out. My oldest daughter is probably one of my best friends today. She called back. She said, Dad, what'd you do? She said, what the hell are you doing down there? She said, Donna called. She said, what are you doing putting them up to writing those damn letters? And she said, I told her, Dad, he did that himself. I said, all right, Dory. I go back to the wedding. First person I run into outside of the wedding is Donna. And she stuck her little hand out and looked the other way. And I thought, oh, my God, 23 years, you know. I ran into my mother-in-law and my sister-in-law, and they looked at me, and it's in the eyes. They come up and hug me and sniffed on me and licked on me. And I went, oh, man, and that's the power. That's the power. It was all, you know what? It was over with. Done. The letters, I made peace. I had made that peace that only we get to do. On the way home, I'm trying to figure out um, uh, what the deal is. I'm trying to figure out, you know, Donna wouldn't accept my apologies, you know. And there's an empty seat in the airplane. And it's like God come in and sit down in a little empty seat. And he looked over at me. He said, son, I want to tell you something. He said, the only thing you need to know right now is that two out of three ain't bad. <laughs> and I got okay. Yeah. I'm on the way to, um, I'm on the way to um, speaking of prison. And uh, somebody stuck a tape in my hand. I thought it was 1956, but Pat says 1954. And I said, Bill W., Fort Worth, Texas. I thought, oh, damn old Bill's been sober a long time, you know. <laughs> Crazy. I was, you know, seven years sober, you know. just and I was kind of lonely on the way out there, and I stuck the tape in. And here's what he says. If you've never heard of a founder, he sounds a little bit like Howard Cosell. He says, uh, there's a new hope and a new light that shines on the loneliness, the darkness, and the brokenness of an alcoholic. And it's the 12 steps pioneered by Alcoholics Anonymous in 1939. And I almost started bawling. And a couple years after that, I was reading the Red Letters. 
And I got the most significant story that I need to know about you and I. The most powerful little thing that happened, ever, has ever happened to me about you and I happened like this. They were running around over in the Holy Land, the 12 guys and the carpenter. I call him the magic man. <laughs> the magic man. <laughs> Before magic, you know, water and the wine, what the hell. <laughs> and he's uh, seen a guy and he's blind. And he said, what about this guy? And the magic man said, oh, this is to show the love of the Father. He said, you know, the Father doeth the works. And they reached down and put some mud on his eyes. They booked. This guy jumps up. He runs all over the countryside. I can see. I can see. They locked him up. <laughs> Did it on the wrong day. <laughs> they set him down. And they said these words. They said, what happened to you? What happened to you? And here's what he said. He said, I don't know what happened. He said, I only know that I was blind, and now I can see. Thank you for having me as your speaker.